0: Great pains to show that what he preached was in line with the scriptures. He wasn't preaching something other than what the prophets and the law taught. He argues that the establishment of this covenant that God made with Abraham was not given, was not established after circumcision, not established after the giving of the law. It was before Which means that being in covenant with God is not by physical descent. God declared Abram right with him by faith. Abraham believed and it was counted as righteousness. And that meant, this is what it means, this is the punchline, that means that Gentiles have equal access with the Jews to this covenant. Both Jews and Gentiles are in covenant with God by faith. And now Paul's going to do this interesting thing. He's going to link that whole discussion of faith to a really vital theme, an important theme, and that is promise. What we get here, let me just say this, what we get here, just to be clear, it is not simply that Abraham... Is this great example of faith? That's not the only thing that Paul is saying, and probably the more important thing that Paul is saying is the Abraham of faith. That this comes by faith. This justification by faith. Right? This being in covenant with God by faith. It's shorthand. It's shorthand for what God is going to do through this promise that Paul links to faith. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's word, we'll read Romans 4, 13 to 22. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For it is, for it is, if the, if, excuse me, for if the adherents of the law um, who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there's no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave, glo- as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, we thank you for this word that you've given to us. And Lord, I pray that as this word is proclaimed... Lord, that you would let everything that is meaningless just fall to the ground. And you would do what you intend to do in the hearts of this people here this morning by this word. We pray that you would do it by your spirit, that you would comfort, that you would convict, that you would strengthen, that you would support, that you would direct, Lord, we pray that you would kill us and raise us up by this word. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. A promise. Promise. What does that word mean? Well, literally, it means, you know, and there's a a little site you can go to. It's called etymology.com. You can find out where words come from. Literally, the word means to send or to release before. That's a Latin. A promise is something sent out before it's there. So whatever it is, it's not present now, but it will be Promise. When you make a promise to someone else, that's kind of what you're saying. You're saying, I'm sending something to you. I haven't sent it to you yet, but I promise, right? I will. That's the idea. I'm giving you an assurance that whatever it is, it'll arrive. I got an email from Amazon. First email told me that what they were going to send me would be here on a yesterday. But then I got an email yesterday that said, oh, things have changed. Now I don't get it till Tuesday. I know. Lame. They didn't keep their promise. Typically, when we think of a promise, what we have in mind is something beneficial, something that you desire, something that you long for, something that you need. I mean, you can promise other stuff, right? Like, because I think about this, right? Sometimes threats, right? If you don't do this, I promise you. But typically, we don't mean that. That's not what we're, we don't get excited about that kind of promise. It's something that we want. Or, or we could say this, and when something is promising, promising, that means it shows promise. It means that there's some indication that there's something good that can be expected. This promise of something stirs an anticipation, stirs up hope. what you find promising a promising a promise that you find meaningful more than likely depends on whatever state you're in at the moment so the promise of food probably will mean more to you if you're hungry or if you went outside this morning the promise of a warm house to go back into probably sounded pretty good. That's promise. I can ask you this morning, what is it that fills that category for you? What do you find promising right now? This morning. What is a promise to you? I mean, as you sit here this morning, coming here to hear this word, that's a question that you have to answer. I can't answer that for you. You have to answer that. And however you answer that, here's the the importance of it. What you find promising right now, will depend on, I mean, will will make the difference between whether or not what you hear this morning matters to you. Because what we're going to hear this morning is the story about a promise, the most important promise that was ever made. This promise is vital. It's vital for your understanding of what we started last week. It's vital for your understanding of why Abraham is your father. It's vital for your understanding of why it is that he is your father according to faith. It's why you must share this faith of Abraham as I said Abraham's faith gets linked to this promise and here's what this promise is all about you ready how God planned to redeem the world that's what this comes down to that's what this promise is about So, the way that I'm going to do this, we'll see if this sermon is promising. (laughs) You see what I did? The way we're going to do this is I want to tell you this story about promise. Because it dawned on me that potentially we could talk about Abraham all day long. We could talk about chapter 4 all day long, but... We may be missing some pieces. You may not really, maybe in a while since you heard the story of Abraham. But I want to tell you this story because it's the superstructure underneath everything Paul has been talking about. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to do a quick run through the first 22 chapters of the Bible. You think it's promising now? Okay, so here we go. Genesis 1 through 2. Most of us know that one. That's Adam, Eve, in a garden. They're image bearers, all of that good stuff. God spoke a word and creation was. He forms Adam. He builds Eve. He blessed them be fruitful and multiply. So there they are in this garden, right? And then the story goes that there are these rivers that leave the garden, that go out into Eden, and go out to the rest of the earth. And so what were they supposed to do? Adam and Eve, what they're supposed to do, they're supposed to come up with a bunch of little Adam and Eves, and as they're running out there in the world, they're supposed to cultivate a world that glorifies God. Yay! That's what they're supposed to do. Or you could imagine that is where this was supposed to head. Well then Genesis 3 we have the fall. We have sin. Now remember what happens there. Instead of life we get curse. They eat the fruit. Remember God said a promise you'll have life but if you Disobey, there'll be death. And in the context of that fall, God makes a promise. He says, I'm going to make this better through the sun. Remember, that's you have the serpent's seed and then the woman's seed, and the woman's seed is going to crush the head of the serpent's seed. that's what God promises. But in the meantime, Adam and Eve are sent out from the garden, out into Eden. They're pushed out. No longer in the garden, out in Eden. And then they have two sons, Cain, Abel, Cain offers an offering, no good. Abel offers an offering, yes. Oh, we have a son. Good, wonderful. We think. And then Genesis 4 rolls around. What happens in Genesis 4? Cain kills Abel. I mean, did I mention Abel's offering was good? He's gone. And then God does something there. Cain kills Abel. God curses him and drives him now from Eden out into the rest of the earth, the land, the world. In the meantime, Adam and Eve have another son, Seth. And in those days, the people called on the name of the Lord. And then we have a genealogy. Lots of fathers and sons. And it filters all the way down to one particular son, Noah. And then you know what his name was uh, about, why he called him that. His father, Lamech, said, hey, this one will set us free, will give us relief from this curse yay so what happens after that well then we have genesis 6 and 7 did you know, did humanity rise no it's all evil all the time that's the way that genesis 6 describes humanity and then we have a flood now this is important because you remember what happened with the flood, right? Now we, we have the ro- waters rising, rising, rising. They cover mountains. They covers the earth. So here's what we've got. We've got the fall. God drives man out of the garden, out in the Eden. Then we have God driving man out of Eden, out into the earth. And now we've got God driving man out of the earth, Into the sea. Waters covering the earth. Get it? We've got a decreation. Everything seems to have gotten rolled back. That's Genesis 1 language. Waters covering. And then we have Genesis 8 and 9. Out of that sea, out of that water, God saves Noah and his family. And they're out in the ark. And after all of those days, the waters begin to dry. Now we've got dry earth, dry land again. God calls them out. You know what he says to them? He blesses them and says, Be fruitful and multiply. Oh my goodness. What does that sound like? We're back. Woo! No. They worship, yes. But then what happens? Well, we've got another garden, a vineyard. We've got a sin. We've got cursing that goes on, and then we have servitude. And then Genesis 10, we have genealogies again. Fathers, sons, peoples, nations spread out on the earth, yay? Well, no, because then chapter 11 tells us how that happened. Remember, chapter 11 is the Tower of Babel. Something interesting happens here, too. God drives this people away from this anti-mountain, right? Because they were trying to, you know, touch heaven, reach God. They were creating their way to God. He drives them out from there, out into the rest of the earth. They wander in the earth. And we get genealogies again fathers, sons, and it filters down again. We know what's going to happen, right? We're filtering down. We're going to get a son. And we do. We get Terah and his sons, and one of those sons is Abram. And then it says that Abram had a wife named Sarai. And then we get this, something that we haven't gotten yet, something that is really disturbing and almost halting. Listen to chapter 11, verse 30. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. You have you have to get the full import of this. Eleven chapters have set our expectation. We're waiting for a son. Because it's through a son that God is going to fix all of this. And now, we get down to chapter 11. And all hope is snatched away. Because now, not only do we have corruption and decay, death, darkness. doesn't say that, but that's the description. Death, darkness. But now... We don't even have a son. I mean, do you get this? With that little sentence, that little statement, that little bit of data about Sarai. She's barren. She has no child. What's being telegraphed to you is, Oh, no. How does this thing get pulled out of the nosedive that it's in right now? That is what this first 11 chapter sets up for you. And then we have this. In Genesis 12, here's what we see. Into that death and darkness, out of that sort of sea of humanity that's out there wandering away from God, separate from God, death, right? God calls, God speaks, and draws one out, out from the wandering people. He spoke a word, and he calls Abram. Again, he says this in chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, listen, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All right, You get that. This wandering people, death, darkness, and God now... Creates again. He creates hope. Out of nothing, he creates hope. He calls this one and says, I'm going to bless all of this through you. God calls one to himself, he restores the separation. Promises that it'll be a great name, mm. excuse me, a great nation. Remember, God has been saying, um, uh, "Be fruitful and multiply." But now God promises to do the multiplying. You see that? He blesses them right now. Here's the connection with one twenty-eight and nine one. God blessed Adam and Eve. He blessed, um, blessed uh, Noah and his family. Here we have a new beginning. And all of those families are blessed in Abram, in him, in relation to him, in their connection to him. That's how this is going to happen. In Abram, God is promising how he is going to rescue the world, how he is going to deliver creation and his people. In Genesis 15, that's what we saw last week, Abraham said, I don't have a son. He still feels the pinch of this dilemma. I don't have how are you going to do this? I don't have a son. I'm going to have an heir, but I'm I don't it's not going to be a son. And God says, "No, no, you will." And he takes him outside, remember, all the stars of the heavens. But then he does this real weird thing. I didn't read this, but this. Listen to this. John, I mean Genesis 15, verse seven. And he said to them, "I'm the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess." But he said, "O Lord uh, God, how am I uh, to know that I shall possess it?" And he said to him, "Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon." Apparently that's how we get promises, we bring some animals, but it doesn't stop there. He brought all these, he cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he didn't cut the birds in half. So we got animals cut in half, set aside from one another. And then you know what happens. This is interesting. Verse 12 says. Abram fell into a deep sleep. Kind of like Adam did. And then in 17. When the sun had gone down. Excuse me. When the sun had gone down. And it was dark. Behold a smoking firepot And a flaming torch. Passed between the pieces. On that day. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham. You know what was going on? Normally, two parties would go through those pieces because they're making a covenant, right? And it's like, hey, as surely as these two pieces are dead as a doornail, so may it be I, me, if I don't keep this covenant. But only God went through, not Abram. This is sort of unilateral. God is saying, I. We'll make sure that this happens, and then we have Genesis 16. And don't worry. Let me just say this to you right now. Don't worry. What will follow is not a long exposition of chapter four. So everybody, just get comfortable. We're We're Genesis 16, Sarai still doesn't have a child. So what does she do? She gives her maidservant to Abram, okay? And then Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son uh, um, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when she bore Ishmael to him. And then Genesis 17 rolls around. God showed up, and this is what he said. And Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. Verse 4, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. That's what Paul quotes. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And then Paul, I mean and then God re- reiterated his promise in this way. Verse 15. And God said to Abraham, "As for Sarai your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and moreover I will give you a son by her." and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Well, Abraham Abraham questioned this, right? Then Abraham fell on his face. He laughed, and he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He protested to God, take Ishmael. This makes a whole lot more sense. God says, he doubled down. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him. Are you hearing the note here? This promise, this plan to rescue the world is going to come through a son, and God is making clear it's going to come through this son, one that I give, not one that you give. All right. And then Genesis 18, we have Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham is praying, he's interceding, advocating. And it gets, re- it gets reaffirmed there. Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. And then we have you know, some winding roads that take place. Abraham kind of goes off on his own. And then 21... The Lord visited Sarah as he said, and and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Yes! Finally! We've got him. God's plan to rescue, to deliver the world through a son has finally come to fruition. We get Isaac. And then Genesis 22 happens. Genesis 22 verse 1. After these things... God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And Abraham says, Here am I, right here. And I want you to hear how this is said. Verse 2 God said to Abraham, Take your son, your only son. Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah, Abraham's like, okay, all right, and offer him there as a burnt offering. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will show you. What? The Son, through whom God's plan to rescue the world has come, and now. God says, sacrificing. Does anybody remember Genesis 11? Darkness, death. And then I want you to hear what Abram did. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning... And he cut wood for the burnt offering, and he arose, and he went to the place which God told him. And then you know what he did? He laid the wood on Isaac's back. And then, Abram, Abraham, he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so both of them he and isaac went together and then isaac asks hey where's where's the lamb and abraham said to isaac his son that he was going to sacrifice God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. My son. There's a little double meaning there. And then it repeats. So they both, both of them went together. It is not as though Abraham got everything ready out of the sight of, of Isaac, and then they just showed up there together. He had to look his son in his eye, he had to speak to his son face to face, answering questions, and don't let the humanity of that escape you. It's been slow and painful, the description for that reason, so that it doesn't escape you, so you don't miss the fact that hope is being drained away as this thing unfolds. And then the final scene comes quickly. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there. He laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood and then Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son. He was ready to go. And then the angel of the Lord called his name. He says again, here I am. Just as he did at the beginning. Do not lay a hand on your on, on the boy. Or do anything to him, for I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then this whole saga ends and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is the promise. All hope of saving the world from a dark fate in Genesis 11. All the, the, the expectation of deliverance hinged on the story of this promise. And this is the story That Paul is telling. Is that story compelling to you? Or is it just a story? You have to answer that question. Right now that is is what God is doing with you. Pressing you against the wall. You have to answer whether or not that story is compelling to you. Does it matter to you? to a degree, that is going to depend on whether or not you see yourself as a part of that scattered people with no hope. This is the promise that Paul has in mind. This promise that depended on faith. The other thing that Paul notes here the other thing that we see is that faith through which the promise comes paul captures this in romans 4:17 to 22 and i'll just make these comments he consolidates the history listen to what he says in hope he abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told so shall your offspring be. Paul says he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Paul certainly points here to what we just heard, Genesis 11, Genesis 17. And he actually highlights it because he says Abraham's body was as good as dead, but he doesn't use the usual word for barrenness. The word he used for barren there also means dead. He's highlighting what was true, what Abraham was up against. Certainly this recalls The early part of this whole thing. And again, listen to Paul's description in 20 and 21. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. No distrust, no wavering, growing strong, fully convinced. Is that what you remember about him, Abraham? It's why commentators point out that the faith of Abraham described here with Paul doesn't exactly match the early part of Abraham's life. This barrenness and the deadness. There we saw Abraham questioning. Are you sure? That is why the compression of this history also includes the sacrifice of Isaac. It must. This is where we see most what Paul describes. In verse 17, when he says, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In Abraham's offering of Isaac, after so many years of waiting for this promise, the promise on which all hope rested, the call to sacrifice Isaac was a call to sacrifice everything. And that, amazingly, that is where we see the faith that Paul describes of Abraham. No wavering, no distrust, fully convinced that God could to deliver the dead, that he could bring life. The dead. The author of Hebrews says something similar. He puts it this way in verse 17 of chapter 11 By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. That's the import of what Paul is saying here about Abraham. That is why Paul ends this by going back to Genesis In verse 22 of chapter 4 in Romans, he says, This is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. Paul doesn't stop there. He does this in 23. He says, But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also, but for yours. That story was for you, not, not simply as an example of what you're supposed to do. Yes, we, should have, we need to have faith like Abraham, right? believing God raises the dead. But that's not the punchline. The it was counted, faith was counted as righteousness. Being in covenant with God. Being right with God. Part of the covenant family with God. That was not just for his benefit. It applies to you and me. Because God's plan to rescue the world and his people from corruption and sin. That plan does not find fulfillment in Uh, Abraham's sacrifice of his only son, the son that he loved. The punchline here, and this is Paul's point, is that that plan that, that God promised to Abraham finds fulfillment in the sacrifice of God's only son, the son that he loved. That is where this plan finds its fulfillment, its culmination, in Christ. And so when he calls us, you and me, to faith in this God that raises the dead, yes, it is that God that raised the dead or figuratively raised the dead for Abraham. But it is that God who does it here with Jesus that Abraham's hope hung on. So I'll ask you again. Does the story of this promise matter to you? People of God, very simply, what you and I are called to is to trust, to really believe the story that Paul is telling. The story of how all that God has promised has come in his son. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these brief moments that we had. I pray that you would take this word again, that you would use it, that you would strengthen us by it, Lord, I pray that you would make it grow as we sit and talk and think about what Paul has told us, the history that he has made clear to us. Pray that you will do all of these things by your spirit in Christ's name. Amen.